For every property type, COVID has changed the distribution of future possible outcomes. And that should make all of us re-examine our pre-COVID expectations of risk and return for each property type, and ultimately what target asset works best in each property type, and finally, how much of each property type we want in our portfolios. That was Colin Gordon, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 10 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. We know that markets are moving quickly right now, so if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with John Ockerbloom, head of Bearing's U.S. real estate equity platform, and Colin Gordon, head of real estate and alternatives research and analytics. This was a really far-reaching conversation. We talked about the real-world tangible impacts that John and Colin are already seeing from the COVID-19 crisis within Bering's own real estate footprint. We also discussed how the world might look similar and how it might look different two years from now. And what are the potential implications of real estate assets from that? We touched on a variety of sectors. We talked about office, retail, industrials, and more, and how each of those are faring so far in this crisis and what the long-term impacts of the coronavirus may be. And finally, we talked about what changes may be appropriate for real estate investment portfolios in the years ahead given the acceleration that we're witnessing in a number of structural trends. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with John Ockerbloom and Colin Gordon. All right, John Ockerbloom, Colin Gordon, very excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Streaming Income. We are, of course, doing this remotely all from our homes. So John, for you, that means Charlotte. Colin, for you, I believe that means Guilford, Connecticut, doesn't it? It does indeed. Thanks for having me. So let's start, guys, just by talking about your roles. John, if you don't mind, would you just describe your role at the firm for us? 100%. I'm the guy who walks up the stairs and sits in his attic for much of the day. Like most of my team, I've been sequestered now, I think, for five weeks. So I'm responsible for the U.S. equity real estate business generally. Colin, how about you? I don't have an attic, so I'm not sitting in it, but I run the research and analytics function for the private alternative assets division of Bearings. Great. So we all know that to some degree, formal job titles are one thing, but what people are actually doing day to day right now, given this crisis can be quite another thing, right? So John, tell us maybe just to start, what's your day to day actually look like right now? I'm curious how the work from home's going. Any big surprises on that front? Much like everyone in our business, we are intensely focused on the property level challenges that are being presented by COVID, rent collection, managing the needs of our tenants, and communicating with our clients. So the job's very similar, though we're doing it differently. As far as the remote working goes, we're working very, very well, I would say. 
Colin, how about from your perspective? How's the team functioning? Any big surprises, like cameras being left on mistakenly or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, sure. Right now, you know, we're replacing face-to-face with our teams and our teammates and our clients with WebEx. So I think I'm on WebEx or some version of video call, I don't know, 68 hours a day right now. Things are bound to happen. I've had my daughter come in and start singing Frozen during a couple calls. I've worn a, by accident, a personalized Disney Mouseketeer shirt that somebody had <laughs> on you know, as a video call. People have been pretty forgiving. I think there's a real high tolerance for the fact that, hey, this is all different and we're all trying to sort of do the best we can. From a technology standpoint, our team, which is research analytics, we tend to be technological adopters anyway. And so for us, it really hasn't been much different. We have an 8.30 meeting every morning. Everybody's on video. We're sharing screens. It really hasn't dented our productivity at all. I totally agree. I mean, that, that's what every day feels like for me is video call after video call. And I think it's pretty effective. It's, it's been fairly seamless. I mean, everybody's roles are, are different. So it's, I'm sure it's different for everybody. And you do certainly lose something by you know, not being in the office and, and not having these unscheduled kind of run-ins with people that are always so valuable. But I'd say by and large, it's working. John, I mean, how about from your perspective, just as you think about working with different groups from around the organization, different teams, different departments, I mean, how's all that kind of working for you so far? Yeah, it's been an unbelievable unintended experiment, but it's really worked out well. We've really had two things happen almost at once, uh, which is really, really interesting. One is obviously COVID-19 has sent everybody home. So that sent everybody to remote locations. But number two, the need for us to be more closely connected has probably not been greater since the GFC. If you think about where we are in real estate, a lot of that is common between our debt business and our equity business. So we've really come very closely together from an interdisciplinary standpoint, spending time with one another around delinquencies, for example, or matters related to collection or forbearance or other matters. So I've been incredibly impressed at how well that has actually worked out, even in the context of separation. All right, so let's get into what's happening in markets today. So our theme for today, which I have to attribute to to John and his creative mind, uh, is fact-finding and fortune-telling. So let's talk facts first. So John, maybe just talk to us about what you're seeing out there in the market today, real-time. How is this crisis impacting real estate markets? Tell us what the bearings teams are doing right now. What are you seeing? Sure. So I would say the biggest thing that we're seeing or that we're managing is collecting rent and managing through tenant challenges, in addition to communicating with our clients and ensuring that that they're you know completely up to speed with the approaches that we are taking. Through this point in the month of April, we've collected roughly 80% of our commercial rents. We're a little over 90% from a multifamily standpoint. So it blends to somewhere in the low to mid-80s, which... I would say is not unexpected. I think it, it might be a little bit better than, than some of us expected from a collection standpoint, just given the extent of the disruption, particularly closures at various stores. Our portfolio is nationally diversified. So we've got a lot of different jurisdictions, a lot of different asset classes, I would say, you know, a lot of challenges in retail. And so, you know, what are we seeing? It's really trying to assess and get the best understanding that we can of the challenges that are tenants are confronting, and then really managing with collections, with forbearance requests, and matters related to access and so on. 
Colin, how about from your standpoint? What's kind of surprising you so far in terms of how this crisis is playing out real time? Yeah, yeah. Well, before I answer that question, can I answer John's question too? Please. <laughs> you know, those of us who've, who've managed our clients' capital through through disruptions, some shallow, some some severe, the job is totally different. My team right now, which is research and analytics, we are really in the stress reduction business. In our normal course of business, when we're not in crisis mode, we're doing strategic projects. We're trying to figure out where there's value. We're really working on things that'll move the needle for our investment teams and our clients on a longer term and short term basis. In these kind of environments, it really is an all hands to the pump. You try to keep tabs on the longer term projects and make some progress. But the reality is everybody is stressed in this environment. So our clients want to know what's going on with their capitals. We are talking to our clients more than we were. We're talking to our internal teams more than we were. We're really just trying to be tactical relief wherever we possibly can. And that's just the nature of the job right now. To answer that other question about what is surprising to me about how this is playing out? I guess I'm a little bit surprised about the seemingly different reactions in the financial markets versus the real economy. I'm a little surprised that the financial markets have bounced back as firmly as they have. After in early March, it was a sell first, ask questions later mentality. And that makes sense. There's total uncertainty. Nobody knows what the fatality rate is going to be, how far it's going to go. We didn't even know we were going to have to shut down. But once we did, how long was that going to be? So that reaction for the financial markets probably took a lot from the GFC too, where again, early reaction to the GFC was kind of muted. And then everybody sort of figured out that this was a bigger problem than they had thought. I think people didn't really want to make that mistake again. But how quickly it's bounced back. I I guess I I attribute that to really once short-term, near-term liquidity and solvency were taken off the table by central banks and Mm -hmm. and, and certainly in the US, the Fed, that actually gave everybody the sense like, okay, we'll work through near-term problems, but fine, we're we're probably not all going bankrupt in, in the next month. I will say one thing that surprised me is how little airtime the quality of the banking system has gotten. What's different about this crisis is it's playing out in a financial system that is much, much more resilient than it was 12 years ago. One last point, even though this is a similar crisis and that it's just so destructive, it's really kind of the opposite of the GFC. The financial destruction of the GFC was more violent. But once you got through it, there was a reasonably straightforward path. You knew you were going to have to work through some bad debt and a lot of people underwater in their homes. But there wasn't confusion to how long the thing was going to last. This is almost the opposite. The hit to the financial markets has been actually comparatively mild. But I'd argue that the path forward is a lot less clear than it was at this stage in the GFC. And I'm surprised that the financial markets haven't priced in more of that future uncertainty. So John, if you think about you know, everything that Colin just said, I mean, is this, is this a time to be playing defense right now? Or is this a time to be kind of proactively seeking opportunities? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. It is the time to be playing defense and it is the time to be seeking opportunities from a defensive standpoint, really important that we're paying attention to what's going on in our portfolios that we are very hands-on. And I think that that's true across the board particularly true in hotels, particularly true in retail. But I think all of our uh, asset classes within real estate are going to have challenges, but I think that they're navigable and I think we're going to get through them. From an offensive standpoint, there is opportunity out there. I think, you know, Colin's point about the banking system regulatory environment, I think is interesting. We have not seen a deep distress that is caused by liquidity challenges emerge, at least as yet. 
to a great extent. So by that, I mean, you know, the calling of repo financing facilities or margin calling of margin uh, facilities that uh, causes asset sales that really can exacerbate conditions of distress. So far, it's been reasonably orderly, although we have seen some loan pools emerge and I expect more to emerge. Today, if I had to say where are the opportunities, it's you got to be pretty counter-cyclical and you got to have guts. I think uh, hotel is presenting opportunities that actually represent real change values uh, in the asset class. So I think that that's one area. We haven't seen transactions happen yet, but price talk has sort of indicated that there is a willingness to transact at meaningfully lower prices. We'll see if that uh, plays itself out. And obviously on the retail side, what's the future of retail is a very reasonable question. And if you have the stomach to, to dive deeply into that, there is probably value to be gleaned. Just to follow up John's point, which he's absolutely right, we're trying to do both. What's interesting about the going on offense is it's such a different process and a different mindset in these environments than it is the 99% of the time that things are quote unquote normal. And really, again, coming back to sort of being disciplined, knowing what the playbook is, working as a team. I'd echo what John said earlier, there has never been a more important time for debt and equity to be working side by side. So when an opportunity comes across, you're agnostic to whether it's debt or equity. It's probably going to be debt, to, to John's point. That's usually what happens first in crises. You you get assets that are that are being margin called, and the ones that can be sold do get sold. And so the, the first opportunities are usually debt. And to do that well, you have to have your equity side completely underwrite the underlying property. So you completely underwrite as if it were an equity investment, and then work hand in hand with the debt teams to then put a reasonable market rate and a reasonable LTV on that property and figure out what your secondary price is going to be. The reason I bring that up is if you do all that in like four days, that's completely different than the three months we might take in a normal circumstance. And so what we're trying to do is be, be ready for when those opportunities come up. You don't know when they're going to be, but we're practicing. We're just like any sports team. We're trying to make sure that when an opportunity comes in, we know what to do, who has to opine on what, so we can really move as a team. But it is a very, very different mentality than we employ most of the normal time, if you will. Let's turn our attention then to the the fortune telling part of this uh, conversation. And we do use that term in jest, of course, because none of us have a crystal ball, but uh, it can feel as if that's what we're trying to do, given so many unknowns out there. So Colin, let me start with you on this one. As you look forward to the world that we're living in two years from now, and you think about How different is that from the one that we were living in pre-COVID-19? Talk to us about what you foresee there. You know, are we traveling less? Are we not shaking hands? Are we, you know, doing all our grocery shopping online? Because that's obviously stuff that's going to have a major impact for real estate markets. So what's your your best sense today? Our teams have had numerous hours of these WebEx debates and discussions around this topic. The answer, of course, is I and we don't know. You really, you're asking the question of, okay, once you get through the short-term effect of 20% of the workforce being laid off, rent collections going down, once we work through the near-term shock of, of COVID, what's the world look like long-term? How much does behavior really change? And that, that really is the question to ask. I have a gut feel. I personally think that the world will look a lot more similar to pre-COVID world than the world we're living in right now. 
I think the trends of urbanization and densification that have been going on for centuries, if not millennia, will resume with some force. In 2007, the world, more of the world started living in a city than in outside cities. And again, I think that that trend has so many benefits. It's tough to see, for me at least, see it reversing. But the more interesting question to me, and probably the more useful one to investors, isn't what the post-COVID world will look exactly like. It's how COVID has changed the distribution of possible future outcomes. And what I mean by this is I may not know whether two years from now, office space is less dense or not. And we'll come to office as we, we talk to sectors in a little bit. But I think we can reasonably say that COVID has increased the probability of reduced density. And what does that imply for the distribution of returns and risk in office real estate? For every property type, COVID has changed the distribution of future possible outcomes. And that should make all of us re-examine our pre-COVID expectations of risk and return for each property type, and ultimately what target asset works best in each property type, and finally, how much of each property type we want in our portfolios. That's a great point. I, I want to come to that toward the end as well as as we think about what all this means from a portfolio construction standpoint for investors long term. But John, what's your view on this on this kind of long term question? Sure. So I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, I should note that crystal balls are available. I looked it up on Amazon, and you can actually buy crystal balls. The cheapest one you can buy is seventeen dollars. Um, it has very limited magic associated with it. Apparently, it might actually. <laughs> It might be glass and actually not a crystal. But interestingly, the most expensive crystal ball you can buy is available for $12,960. And it's described as being, quote, lucky, close quote. So it's good to know that you are do, you fully have done your research in preparation for this podcast. Well, listen, if we're fortune telling, it may come in handy at some point. So they are available. Here's what I would say. I think I agree with Colin more than I disagree. I think that the world does restore itself to something approaching normalcy, certainly two years from now. I think that there will be exceptions, and we'll talk about those when we get to asset classes. Real estate spreads to the risk-free rate were very attractive pre-COVID. They are more attractive today, and real estate's characteristics will not change. It is a hard asset-backed, long-duration yield-producing asset that has inflation protection characteristics. That does not change. And so I look and say, over time, I'm bullish on real estate predominantly for that reason. There are a few asset classes that fit all the characteristics in the way that commercial real estate does. So I, I believe that the trends of value, that there is opportunity, and that value will increase over time uh, as a result of those uh, demands. What about if we go to some of the specific sectors here? So, you know, I think it's very, very difficult to make broad generalizations about real estate markets. So let's talk about sectors and let's talk about um, some of the specific impacts that we're expected to see. So, so John, maybe let's start with with office. You know, I think obviously we've talked about how we're all working from home today despite some of the technological hiccups here and there, you know, by and large, it's, it's kind of working, right? It's, it's the world's largest experiment ever in, in moving a, a workforce from one place to another, and it's, it's kind of working. So is that a very bearish sign for office as an asset class, or what, what's your thinking there? Would I say it's a very bearish sign? I don't. I will say that this great experiment, for the most part, is working meaning 
that we are able to communicate, that we are able to get our jobs done, are able to participate nearly to the same extent as we were when we were physically located um, together. Are there things lost? I'm sure there are, but it's largely worked. And I, I think that once that is known, it is going to be impossible for managers of companies to unknow it. When you consider that occupancy expense is almost always top five in the expense load of any business, sometimes top three, to take that expense out of the system, with the trade-off being setting up an employee in a home office, and let's say that you spent $1,500 to get very high-quality systems installed and very strong broadband, and you do that every three years, the costs just are not comparable. So I absolutely believe that fewer people will work full-time in offices for many businesses. I agree with John in that it's tough to put the genie back in the bottle in terms of how effective distance working has been and continues to be. That being said, there are, and we had an interesting discussion with one of our coworkers this morning, at least a short-term movement to increase the square footage per, per person, which square footage per person has been declining for 30 years. And now does this COVID say, all right, let's, let's make that a, a little less dense in the office, give people a little more space. That would be an argument for greater utilization of office space. I tend to think, I agree with John in general, I don't think this ultimately changes what has been a very long trend of diminishing square footage per worker. And I also think that because there is going to be less of a need for all workers to be in the same place every day, it's probably a pretty good thing for emerging growth cities like the Austins, the Charlottes, the Minneapolis's, the Raleigh's, the Nashville's, where you can get away and get a much greater value for both the residential space as well as the office space. And not everybody in the and your industry has to go into New York City every day. So I think the, the winners are the sort of faster growth, second tier, emerging tier cities. And I don't think that we go back to sort of the mad men size office spaces that you know, we had 30 years ago. To put some numbers around this, in 2010, the average square foot utilization per employee was roughly 225 square feet per person. By 2012, it was roughly 175. By 2017, it was roughly 150. So it was already, it was, it was moving down and contracting. I think what that speaks to is just, it's really expensive to have people working in an office. And guess what? I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Greg. I am bearing all of those expenses with respect to my home office. Every ounce of the cleaning is on my P&L. My taxes remain on my P&L. All of my occupancy expense, if I add additional lighting, Guess who's paying for it? So, I mean, it's very attractive to businesses to at least consider, and it'll be offset in part by this uh, maybe reverse densification. But I think from an overall standpoint, companies are going to want to continue to become more efficient. Okay. Well, the office world is changing. What about the industrial space? So this has almost been, I don't know if it's too strong a word to call it like the darling sector for investors in recent years. But if you think about things like logistics centers benefiting from the explosion in e-commerce that we've seen, um, it's been a great place for investors to be. So, you know, let's talk about that, Colin. Do you want to start around, you know, how everything we're living through today may impact the industrial space? Similar to office, I think most property types can be, you kind of have to look at the existing structural trends that are in place and see, ask yourself, is COVID going to accelerate or decelerate it? So for, for industrial, you know, last 10 years between the uh, emergence of industrial and the destruction of value in retail, two sides of the same coin, we've really seen the global economy 
rewire its circulatory system for how it gets goods to consumers. And that's basically what has happened with the, the, the rise of e-commerce. If anything, COVID probably accelerates that. But just like any, any large group of assets, there are going to be winners and losers within those, uh, within those groups. And again, coming back to the theme of where does COVID help or hurt the future possibilities, I'd say the safest portion of industrial is last mile. I, I don't think that's a controversial stance. I think that's probably been the case for a while. Where there is some risk, I would say, is to supply chain industrial real estate connected to international trade. One of the open questions of COVID is, is how much does it slow down globalization? Do we say as societies that, no, we have to have a certain amount of our production capacity onshore, even if it is more expensive because it's more resilient in times like this? There was already some, some pushback against globalization in the populist movement over the last five years. And, and it's a fair question to ask if COVID is going to do the same thing. And if it does, that would imply that the value of the Port of Los Angeles, Elizabeth, New Jersey, you know, emerging ports like Savannah, it's still valuable, but slightly decreased compared to what it was pre-COVID. But in general, it's difficult to see increasing the risk of industrial real estate absent just a sheer contraction in GDP or consumption, and that would hurt everything. We are very bullish on industrial, but it's possibly tweaked exactly what assets we're looking for. Colin, what if we look at another sector, retail, that's obviously been one of the ones that's been in the center of the storm here. And one of the ones that was, you know, in some parts of it, at least in structural decline before we ever heard of the coronavirus. What do you see in there? What do you expect there? Yeah, no, similar to, to industrial, this is, does COVID accelerate or decelerate a long-term, very powerful structural trend, as you point out? I think it's difficult to say anything other than on margin, it accelerates that trend. If you were bearish on retail a couple months ago, you're probably more bearish now. A couple of, of interesting things to really keep an eye out for. The most resistant part of retail to e-commerce has always been both in the US and in Europe, grocery-anchored necessity-based retail. Um, it's just people seem to like shopping for food. They want to hold the tomato and feel it. It's had gains, but nothing like all the other retail categories. And to the point where retail doesn't almost mean anything as a category anymore because regional malls, power centers have really massively underperformed what is, has been the crown jewel of retail, which is that grocery-anchored. If anything is going to push a faster adoption of e-commerce purchase of groceries and necessities, it's probably this. And so while I'm not calling for the end of, of, of value in grocery-anchored retail, coming back to the theme of where does COVID increase, you know, change your future possibilities, where does it possibly increase your risks or your rewards, I would say that would be something I'd be keeping a very, very close eye on. To that end, I'll give you a couple of statistics just to follow up on Colin's point. So I took a look very briefly at delivery apps and their employment, and I note that Instacart's downloads for the month of March are up 218%. Walmart groceries uh, download is up 160%. Shipped and, and Target uh, up uh, 100% apiece. So clearly, um, the world is at least contemplating adoption of, of grocery delivery. It'll be interesting to see what the follow-through is in the months of April and May as statistics on sales become more clear. And then further on, will people return to the stores when they have the ability to squeeze an avocado in safety, uh, which all of us, I think, enjoy. 
<laughs> and to John's point, there's been a lot of discussion in, in retail of omnichannel, which is which is retailers having both the e-commerce capability as well as bricks and mortars. There was an interesting article this morning about, I think it was Bed Bath & Beyond, in real time, turning many of its retail stores into fulfillment centers for its e-commerce. One of the great things about real estate as an investment has always been its substitutability. How, yeah, you can you can buy a property with a certain purpose, but usually because it's in a in a well located area and in a city or what have you, you can repurpose it to its highest use. And that's happening in retail all the time. And the COVID pandemic is going to just increase that and move more, tilt more towards e-commerce and less to bricks and mortars. Yeah. Yeah. So much to consider with, with retail, probably a whole separate discussion. I think your point around it being very hard to generalize, well, what is retail today being a really good one? And, and, and some of those stats, John, that you mentioned resonate with me. I think Another sector to mention uh, that that's also really very much in the center of the storm and, and probably being hurt as much as any right now would be hotels. So tell me what you're seeing there and, and maybe what you expect to see there. Do you think that this is going to result in a, in a long-term structural change for hotels? Our projections say that uh, things are going to be very difficult in the hotel sector, you know, likely through the summer and into the fall. I think, at least my own thesis is that leisure uh, travel probably rebounds maybe more robustly in the next nine months. I think business travel of a discretionary sort, meaning non-convention, probably is next uh, beyond that. And then I think that the large group business is probably the slowest to come back. So that affects, you know, gateway cities, places like New York and San Francisco, you know, to a great extent. Having said all of this, you know, lodging was in a difficult state before COVID, right? Connor mentioned uh, questions around accelerating trends. You know, Airbnb had really uh, provided a shock to the system of uh, the hotel industry to which they were adopting. And now this just sort of interrupts that adoption process. I think we'll continue to see that adoption. And I do think that there will be a restoration of the business of hotels. It's been around for millennia and I think it will continue I think that the, the big flags and the big brands were beginning to make progress against challenges associated with Airbnb prior to all of this. And I think it's reasonable for them to pick that back up. So, you know, it might be 18 months away before we see something that feels more normal. But, you know, between now and then, we'll have pockets of, of recovery that are more accelerated, what we hope to be, you know, month over month improvements. I completely agree with leisure travel and hotels that have exposure to leisure travel will be the ones you want to own relative to business travel. I actually think that resort hotels will, will be ultimately fine long-term. I think people still want to travel to different places and jump in pools. Airbnb, to John's point, what Airbnb did to the hotel industry is it cut off the high end of their pricing. So if you think about event pricing, whether it's a peak season or a convention or a sports game, the that's when Airbnb brought on capacity in whatever given city. So it used to be hotels could spike pricing to gather that super high demand events and times. They can't do that anymore. They can do it to a lesser extent because that's when Airbnb draws in all that extra capacity from the private sector. What's interesting, if you look at the public market, the, the REITs, reaction to COVID, the worst performing REITs out of all the property REITs weren't actually the retail REITs, they were the hotel REITs, which underperformed just by a little bit all the the major retail REIT indices. And that's kind of telling you something. 
coming back to things that you're surprised by, that definitely surprised me. I would have thought that retail REITs would have really you know, been the worst performance, but no. There's obviously a lot of questions about the long-term viability of the hotel business model. That being said, I feel a lot better about leisure hotels than I do retail. And one other thing, Greg, we haven't really talked about is if global business community does reduce its business travel, one of the great winners here is ESG i.e. what we're doing today in terms of communicating and traveling and and minimizing the need to actually burn carbon for me to go to Charlotte or for somebody to travel. That's all very, very ESG friendly. But again, it is not great for certain sectors of of the the real estate market. You know, I think your points are are all taken around, you know, where where things could pick up first, where they may take a longer time. I mean, discretionary business travel does seem like it would make sense for that to lag, but but people are, are ready to get out on holidays. I think uh, as soon as as soon as it's safe to to do so. Speaking as somebody who's been home with my beloved five year old and one year old for a month now, I would really like to go somewhere warm and jump in a pool. <laughs> okay, last sector before we finish up: apartments or multifamily. Colin, what's your general expectation? Employment is a big factor if people can actually make their rent or not. What's your what's your thinking here? Short term. Class A urban core is probably pretty resistant to COVID shock. That the tenants there tend to have savings, and so again, if we look at our own collections, that's that's bearing to be true. Workforce housing, B and C class multifamily is probably in the near term very very susceptible to headline shock because of the nature of the twenty percent of of people that have you know the, the socioeconomic status of the twenty percent of the economy that's just filed for unemployment. So short term, I, I think. You're going to see headline risk about collections and and delinquencies in the B and C multifamily much more than A. In general, though, I think multifamily is probably the most resistant of these sectors. Um, if COVID really does truly change behavior, where there is a, a unwillingness at any price to live on top of each other in a dense multifamily situation where we have to share elevators, where we have to share garbage rooms, whatever have you. Yeah, that would be a that would be a strong hit to multifamily, but that will be a strong hit to a lot of things. Again, because I've already told you sort of my view of the world a couple of years from now, I think multifamily is probably going to be the most resistant. It'll be especially resistant in the south and west of the US, where there is the ability to own a home is is so expensive and there's just not a lot of single single family housing stock anyway. Long term I think COVID probably is increased the risk to class A urban core multifamily the most. Again, I think that's just because as we've talked about, the gateway cities, urban cores are the most expensive for just about everything right now. And I think as, as we've discussed, we favor the, the sort of emerging cities at the expense of the, of the class A urban core. And again, long term, I feel fantastic about workforce housing, BNC, just because I think the price point, the lower the price point, the more likely your occupancy is going to be. Coming to a couple of the sort of subcategories, single family rentals has been an emerging, really emerging subclass of multifamily for a while. This is either cobbled together or pre-planned communities where single family homes are rented, not owned. That has been a fantastically performing section of the REIT market. And I think that's going to be a clear winner here, i.e. where you can address the affordability through the rental structure. But again, on margin, you have people wanting to live you know, in a single detached structure. Student housing, I think, is, is an open question. 
again, coming back to technology, this crisis, making technology an obvious and working replacement for something we did in person. I think it's fair to say that that distance learning, which has been making great strides over the past decade, again, I wouldn't be that surprised to see it becoming more mainstream to earn degrees online. And that would be a, a detraction for the demand for student housing. I don't think it's a, a bad asset, but on, on the margin, I think COVID probably makes it a slightly more risky asset. All right, guys. Well, as we come to a conclusion here, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. So I guess let's let's boil it down to what it all means from an investment perspective. So, John, as you think about the years ahead, um, you think about real estate portfolios for professional investors. I mean, what's your sense of how maybe they can and should change in terms of asset allocation? I think that the next several years are going to present real opportunity for investment in what I think of as generational assets, meaning uh, I think the next handful of years, things will be meaningfully cheaper than I expect them to be in years beyond that, just because of these overwhelming trends that I think are at work. The need to produce income is so great, um, and the risk-free rates are so low, and the risk of inflation is so present that I think it just plays directly into commercial real estate as an asset class. And so I think if it, in the near term, very high quality assets are on sale, either through the process of acquiring their debt or um, through the ability to buy them uh, in the market at a reduced level of competition, I think people ought to be taking advantage of it. Colin, how about from your perspective? Unsurprisingly, John and I are in in pretty good agreement about that, seeing we probably talk about it for a couple hours every day. But no, I think real estate's role in a portfolio, certainly core real estate's role in a portfolio for providing stability and durable income, you know, I I think is going to continue and frankly, it's going to shine. We talk about the increase or reduction in risk brought on by COVID-19. What we're not talking about is every other asset's increase or reduction in risk. And, And so relative does matter and real estate, core real estate, I think will really be a bulwark of a portfolio more than it was. I do think, however, you know, increasingly as technology can substitute, that doesn't always substitute, but can substitute for the activities that occur in buildings. When one used to invest in a building, one was really investing in what happened in that building. So an office, you were investing in people working together in a company to producing goods or services. Uh, hotels, you were investing in people traveling, whether for business or for leisure. Retail, you were investing in the act of somebody going to buy goods. Technology is, is really slowly replacing some of these things. So in e-commerce, that, that activity that used to happen in the building is now happening uh, in the ether. In uh, Same with office. We're just discussing how WebEx has been so effective and, and video conferencing has been so effective in replacing face-to-face contact. And again, we've already talked about hotels. So that erosion of the utilization of real estate is, is real. I think that the industry is aware of that. Um, but it does, for me, really makes you look at your portfolio, not just as a real estate portfolio, but as a holistic portfolio and say, all right, where are the things in my portfolio that that will benefit from that? Whether that's technology companies, um, our private equity team has a has a company that invests in fiber optics within apartment buildings. Would be a great example of something that really should do well if a lot of these things we're talking about of COVID really do err on the side of, of being more displacing of buildings. And so again, you know, technologies, this is not news, but technologies role in disrupting everything should make an investor look at that potential of disruption 
and then make sure that their portfolio can benefit from that disruption as well as have assets that, that won't benefit from that disruption. I think it's clear that the technology is is touching almost every sector that, that we've talked about here today. And I know Colin, you and your team do an incredible amount of great research on all of these trends. So for any of our listeners, you know, I would definitely recommend checking out some of the work from Colin and his team. And John, you and your team are obviously doing a lot of work actually investing into a lot of these trends and a lot of what we talked about today. So we'll see how this crisis plays out. I think you've both given us an incredible amount of insight, an incredible amount of things to think about um, on the back of this. And I would say, you know, we could probably do 10 more podcasts touching a little more deeply on on some of the topics that we covered today. But, but I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak with uh, me today and, uh, and to share some of these insights with, with our listeners. So John, Colin, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Our pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to episode 10 of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.